Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Adam Coots. Welcome back, Adam. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, it's good to have you back. So I was reading in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Um, my father-in-law sort of turned me on to the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago. Um, he always refers to it as <laughs> as his graduate school. He said, you know, I just learned so much from reading these articles and it put me on to different topics to delve in as kind of a springboard into different topics. Right. So I've always kind of kept my subscription up and um, dive in and out periodically, depending on how much time I have. But I was reading this article about Elon Musk, basically about his management philosophy. And it talks about how he likes to always go back to first principles, questioning all assumptions of what can be done and what can't be done and building things from the ground up. Almost, it's almost Cartesian, but not exactly. Um, so I reached out to you and I thought, well, hey, what are the assumptions? What are first principles that we're ignoring or assumptions that we're making that can or can't be done in the church in our age that we should reassess? So that's what I want to chat with you about yeah. today, and yeah. let's just launch in. So so what was your um, impression of the article overall, and then how, how do you think we can apply this to the church? Okay. The method, and, and that's what it is, it's not a statement about what is true and what is false or mm -hmm. what is good and what is evil. It's a method for coming to decisions and clarity that will enable you to move forward most often in a way that other people are not, which is, of course, a great advantage in business, but also in science and lots of other endeavors, mm -hmm. simply because most people are thinking by analogy. And their analogies are usually drawn from past personal experience, very often immediate past personal experience or personal acquaintance at the very yeah. least. So that does not enable them to think, and it's, this is an example that Musk will bring up in all kinds of different venues and has over the years, because he's been talking about this for a decade plus. And he'll say, you know, there, there were, and this is true, historically, th there were people who at the time of the invention of the gas powered automobile said, nobody wants these, <laughs> you know, um, in the past, nobody has wanted these, like they have horses and grass is easier to access than you know, refined petroleum products. So especially in, you know, whatever, 1902. So therefore nobody's going to want these. It doesn't matter. Let's, you know, move on with our lives and, and keep up with our horses. And there might actually be things for which a horse is better than, you know, a diesel truck at doing maybe. And we're still talking about diesel trucks and everything else um, in terms of horses, in terms of their horsepower. Correct. But, but the analogy the, the thinking by analogy is unable to innovate fruitfully to, or, mm. or you could, or you could say it this way, it's unable to survive, 
right? So there are plenty of automobile companies that are some sort of a descendant of some kind of inventor, obviously Ford Motor Company, but there are other corporations that he started and Daimler and all, all kinds of things. There are others, however, that survived for a long time, like Studebaker, that were carriage companies. And they, they figured, well, what, what if, what if there's just not a horse at the front, right? Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we keep doing this? So what you're always looking at is the capacity to actually exist. That's the question. Are you going to exist, bring into existence something that doesn't yet exist, or are you going to survive and maybe even thrive if there are existential threats to your existence right now? Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about the church, there are very obvious existential threats. There are things that I find people know anecdotally or intuitively, or if they don't know it, they sense it. And I've been working on some data concerning that that we can discuss if you want to. But everybody knows that there's an existential threat of all kinds with many sources. Um, Mm -hmm. But we all know that this is beginning to go away if we don't do something else. So it's important to say at the outset, this is not a debate about the truth of the Lutheran confessions exactly. It's whether there's going to be somebody who publicly (laughs) proclaims the truth of the Lutheran confessions in 50 years. That's the question, right? And, And that's the kind of question that the church historically has not asked itself because its existence seemed obvious and presumptive. Mm. Thinking by analogy, right? Has there ever not been, you know, a Lutheran church in Germany? Has there ever not been a church of some kind in what is now the United States of America? No. So, so therefore, th- there's going to be one, right? Um, that thinking by analogy doesn't enable you to deal with radically different circumstances. The reason. Musk has worked this way or others have worked this way. And you can find parallels and analogs, if you will, if you will, to Musk in the past and in some of his competitors is that they had to bring into being something that was either, you know, did not previously exist like, you know, mass produced automobiles, or they had to challenge a convention concerning you know, you can't, you can't produce a reasonably priced fully electric vehicle, right? Whatever, right? Whatever, however you feel about electric vehicles, right? And that production process and whether it's green and blah, 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 blah. All we're saying is he has brought about in Tesla, in that example, something that people told him explicitly, like, you're not going to be able to do this. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen because battery packs just cost too much and they're never not going to cost too much. So before we get into maybe those that data that you mentioned and the existential threats that I think people know about. But yeah. before we get into that, it right. it seems as though there is a particular temperament that goes along with this as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> uh, you, you've referred to it as like being daring. I've talked about like bravery and not being slothful. But if we don't currently have that temper- temperament, what yeah. things do we need to do to begin building it up? Uh, and, then, and then we'll get into those threats. So if you, if you don't want to think about new things necessarily, because I find that you know, some people are, are concerned about, let, well, let's, 
let's have a church where we don't yet have a church or let's, you know, try to find people in, you know, this place 10 minutes away and bring them to the church we do already have. If you just think about keeping going what we currently have, which would be infrastructure maintenance in church terms, similar to, you know, let's make sure that Interstate 95 in Philadelphia can actually be driven on, which currently it cannot, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because part of it just fell down, <laughs> right? Okay. So if you just think about infrastructure maintenance in church terms, you'd, you'd be talking about revitalization or you'd be talking about replanting or something, right? If yeah. you think about it that way, then you're not, you're not saying like, uh, please just act more optimistic that because that's going to be lying to yourself and right. it has insufficient rigor. And when you have insufficient rigor at the beginning of something, you're not going to wind up with a rigorously truthful answer at the end of the process. So this is not just sort of an attitudinal or psychological thing or, mm-hmm. or maybe like a rhetorical form of happy pills that make you feel better (laughs) about things that you know, right? So if you know, you know, okay, people are moving out of this community or people are moving into this community, but they're not, you know, the people that have historically gone to the Missouri Senate Church because they came from Washington State and they don't go to church, whatever the case is, then you have to, in order to be daring in in a way that is not foolhardy, you have to be Real, very realistic about what the challenges actually are. Yeah. So in the same way that you, you could say, okay, a mountain climber is a very daring person. A mountain climber also has to be brutally realistic about things like weather and his own muscle density and nutrition and lots of other things that might seem tedious, but if he is insufficiently attentive to them, all the daring in the world is not going to do him any good, right? Um, the reason that you have and this is, you know, if I, I am ashamed to use an analogy, right, when we're talking about this first <laughs> principles approach, but here's the analogy is that one of the places that you can see um, dead human bodies in the world most easily is on the common ascents up Mount Everest. Yeah. And the reason you can see them is because you have plenty of daring people with the resources to fly there and to begin the ascent, but their foolhardiness does not allow them actually to survive. Mm-hmm. So in order to be daring, I think the absolute first thing that you need is the capacity to be realistic. And if there's anything that the church is currently lacking, it's that. Because so you're you talking have, about like self-awareness. Uh, yeah, or, personal, or yeah, personally. Yeah, personally. But, but you, I mean, you'd have to be able to, to, to say out loud, like, you know, um, in this congregation or in this church body, right? So let me just give you one of the little data tidbits that we've come up with so far is that since 2012, every single district in the LCMS has declined, every single one, right? So all you're talking about numerically is who has declined least, and that's the Wyoming district. (laughs) But everybody's declined in the past, that's 11 years now, right? But our, 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 our contemporary data is from 2021. If that's the case, then um, telling ourselves that that's not happening or, or acting optimistic or not asking ourselves why that's happening isn't going to serve us well because it means that the solutions we're going to come up with to that are going to be flawed since we weren't able – I mean, I'm not going to get an honest answer if I'm not really asking honest questions. Mm-hmm. So 
that's that's what I mean by realistic. It's it's not it's it's a self awareness, yes, about one's own self and one's own proclivities and one's own temperamental misery or whatever your problem is. Yeah. But it, but it also involves on a collective level where you're whether you're talking about a congregation or a church body or whatever, right? Um, the capacity actually to know what the situation is, and if that doesn't happen, then it's really hard to get something good out on the other end where we're saying. Okay, well, what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we go forward? Okay. So there has to be a, a, an honesty with what the actual threats are. Yeah. Being able to state them without necessarily um, pointing fingers. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I mean, if you want to, like, you can, pointing fingers is fine, right? Pointing mm-hmm. fingers, it, pointing fingers is only bad for a person or group of people who are interested in being hypocritical. Okay. Okay. Like if I don't, and you know, to be clear, what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is, is, is pretending to be someone else that you're not. Right. So, you know, if I'm a Christian, I don't, I don't have to do that. Right. Like my yes is yes. And my no is no. And I'm not pretending to be holier or more important or smarter or anything than I am. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so I can, so I can say I screwed up in this or you, or, or we can say you screwed up in this, yeah. or we can say we screwed up in this because the, I, I think the issue here, uh, besides a lack of reality is in, I think you've talked about it as, as niceness or, or something like that. But the way that I see this functioning when you're actually trying to find a solution to a problem is that it is a kind of pharisaism about maybe about the past or um, an incapacity to say that you did something wrong. I mean, actually to say that. So you can, you can say this is just very simply an incapacity to repent because of a, a, a pride that has to be nurtured. It's why I hate the phrase, our beloved synod. (laughs) I, um, I understand why people use it, but right? Because they have attachments I don't have. Great, fine. But the the purpose of a phrase like that is sort of like a, a politician who believes neither in God nor in uh, actually loving America or the people who actually live here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who are not just looking at it as a shopping mall, who still signs off in a speech with God bless America. It's all hollow and we know it. Right. So, so the, but the reason it's hollow, the way things get hollowed out, is that you you feel when you're dealing with people that there's nothing is touching life. Yeah. So sometimes that feels like a it feels like an inauthenticity in the interaction, mm-hmm. or they're holding something back or something. Right. If that goes, if that if that gets multiplied every time there's an interaction, right? Every time you you go to your circuit meeting, every time there's a synod convention, every time you have a church meeting, every time you have an elders meeting, every time you stop and think about your own life, if that lack of sincerity is there, then of course there's a lack of repentance because there's a lack of reality because yeah. you, you can't sit there with yourself and admit what the reality is. Yeah. What I was trying to think of when I said without pointing fingers is, it seems to me that there's a capacity not only to to be ruled by kind of a culture of niceness, but while at the same time just carping at one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is right. counterproductive, it Which, seems. Well, 
Yeah. Well, it, the reason it's counterproductive is because carping never involves you. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. The, right. Like, point, and yeah. I mean, I mean, involved in a, you know, substantial sense of that word. Like you're not wrapped up in this. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like carping is like, I, I, from where I am, tell you to fix your stuff where you are. That doesn't really affect me. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the difference between carping or complaining or whining and stating that something needs to change is that when you're stating that something needs to change, you're actually putting yourself in that process somewhere. I'm going mm-hmm. to support you as you change. I'm going to try to help you see why this is necessary, whatever it is, right? It's, yeah. it's extremely easy now because of heightened awareness of one another, right? I can go watch almost anybody's sermon, for example, you know, and, and I, could, I could set up, you know, um, some kind of AI tool that would, you know, come up with all the things that I think are wrong in any given person's sermon, any given Sunday, right? Yeah. And so I could just, I could, you know, I could, I could get better at that, right? I could get better at carping because I would be even more aware of everything that is going wrong and phrases that I don't like and and things that they shouldn't have said and and etc. That doesn't really change anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't involve me. So there's a lack of personal involvement that leads to pride. Yeah. And pride is always happy to point out other people's faults without the necessity for helping them change. So let me give you an example of this. I've talked various places at various times about contraception. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, uh, obviously I'm living my life in a certain way. Um, and people know that. So I'm not speaking of a position of, you know, putting a burden on somebody that I am not also myself, you know, handling, not that I actually think eight children is a burden at all. I'm just saying, right. If you want to look at it that way, Pharisees put burdens on other people that they themselves are not willing to lift. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lack of personal involvement at the same time. If we're going to talk about contraception, I've tried to be very clear. Maybe I could be clearer that what this is, is a wholesale abandonment, not only of how the scriptures teach about children, but it's also an abandonment of a certain life of blessing that we are missing out on because we are seeking things that God doesn't want to give us necessarily, like more and more and more money, more and more and more leisure, while denying the things that he does want to give and calls good without the kind of ambiguity that money has, which is children. So we're all working all the time, every day on living a life that actually accords more with God's will, including a life that is more full of his gifts. And because that's a process that is obviously not completed in any single person before death, where he's perfectly blessed, you don't have to talk about it in a carping, harping, enraged way. Right. Right. So I I think, you know, not and not that, you know, contraception has nothing to do with some of the decline that that we've been talking about. Right. But it's like there are ways to handle problems that we all have. Mm -hmm. The way not to do that is to act like only you have problems and I don't. Makes sense. So the first thing on temperament is just kind of like the Jordan Peterson, never lie to yourself, never lie 
Never. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, always speak the truth uh, in, a, in a way that includes you in it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The, do you think that the church thinks, uh, just, we'll just use the Missouri Synod as an example. Okay. Yeah. Do you think the Missouri Synod thinks that it is facing existential threats? Or do you think it, um, on the whole and for the most part, generally speaking, um, relies upon the promises of God that the gates of hell will not prevail or that there's always going to be a remnant and it leads them t- thus to be inactive? Okay. Yeah, that that's a great question. I want to distinguish between gut feeling and, and imagination. Okay. And then also between the Missouri Synod and, and the, the promise that Christ makes concerning the church. Um, because I don't think people are in their own thinking. Mm-hmm. On a gut feeling level, I think everyone senses that there is enormous decline and far too rapid change. Yeah. It, it's probably why when a lot of people try to even think about this, let alone to express themselves, like you know, pastors are trying to talk about what is actually going on in the world, when they do that, they are very often, they look and sound tired. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, because part of them, in a way that is perhaps not expressed, senses that things are slipping away, uh, competencies, resources, churches slipping mm-hmm. away. That's different from imagination. So if you have an effective blocking method between things your gut tells you or things that your intuition tells you and mm-hmm. your capacity to think in a way that would actually affect action, which usually engages your imagination, right? And I don't mean yeah. like your capacity to think, you know, come up with new fairy tales to tell to kids. I mean, your capacity to think about what could be in five years or could be after your death or or could be if you got up earlier tomorrow morning, whatever, right? Your your capacity to think of what might, but mm-hmm. need not necessarily occur. If you have a blocking mechanism, which is you say intuition is of relatively little value, which in human interactions is pretty dumb, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really good to have intuition in human interactions. But um, people also do with factors like, you know, they, they, they might have a sense that their congregation is in some kind of decline, or they might have a sense that the Missouri Synod is facing wilder and weirder theological challenges, right, um, than ever before, okay? That we're probably going to be debating women's ordination because everybody else is. We're probably going to be debating uh, what, you know, can you be celibate but gay, right? The way the PCA mm-hmm. just did. Um, that things are getting stranger and more difficult. They have that sense, but if you have a blocking mechanism, and here I want to say that your second, the second part of your question is part of the blocking mechanism, mm-hmm. is that if you are inherently thinking of your own form, your own confession of Christianity as necessary, obvious, never going to go away, then your blocking mechanism is that, I think, prideful equation between your form of Christianity and the church. So that the promises that Jesus has made concerning those who believe in him unto eternal life somehow apply to your organization. 
right? That's the, I mean, this is, this is the absolute basic Roman Catholic thought error. If you look at our confessions, our confessions generally, when they're bringing up the actual structure or functioning or administration of what we would now call the Roman Catholic church, but what they usually call the papacy, right? Mm -hmm. Or the adherence of the Pope is that there's an equation for those adherents or the papacy or Roman Catholicism between their organizational structure, right? So not the confession of Christ, not the existence of people who truly believe in the scriptures. Yes, that's going to continue. And a confessional Lutheran believes by necessity that people who truly believe in the scriptures are confessional Lutherans. True. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the Missouri Synod or the Wisconsin Synod needs to exist? Not at all. But I think that's usually the blocking mechanism between the intuition and the imagination, and it prevents the imagination from operating on the basis of intuitions that are actually touching on what the Musk article would call first principles. Yeah, yeah. So when that's when that is happening, how do you get back to f- first principles? Do you need someone from the outside of you to bring you back, or is this something that you can teach yourself to always do? I mean, I know I know people who have gone through both, right? Okay. Um, I, one or the other, or both at the same time. So, mm-hmm. if someone else is saying it to you, what probably happens is that when the when your blocking mechanism is attacked, you are initially very hostile, <laughs> right? This yeah. is, I mean, this is this is one reason that a minister needs to have thick skin because it right. truly is not personal, even when the attack on you is personal. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're attacking you or they're trying to attack your family or they're trying to attack your congregation. Of course, of course, the attack is personal to you, but it's not personal in the sense that you need to worry about it right. as if it is your personal problem. They're attacking the fact that you in just the basic proclamation of the gospel are going after their own fallen, prideful sense of themselves and that they are at the center of the world. And you're saying instead that the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the center of the world and should be at the center of their world. So that's that's the most basic human blocking mechanism, right? So think, yeah. I mean, if you just think about they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, like they're pushing it down. Yeah. So they don't like it when you go after that. That's also the case in the church. Because in the church, we also have, right, as I mean, the small catechism teaches, right? God is breaking and hindering every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And when we are engaged in hypocrisy as the church, or we are engaged in pride as the church, that's our sinful nature running rampant, holding hands with the devil in the world. Mm-hmm. So you might need somebody else to do that, right? To to say like, this is a mess, right? You can't, like, we can't do this anymore, whatever, right? Or you can come to the realization on your own. Obviously, the latter is a more pleasant. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> experience, right? Obviously. Um, but for a lot of people, I find that that both happen at the same time, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So what, so what are the main existential threats that, that going back to first principles would help yeah. us actually deal with? Okay. Um, the, the one that we've known about for a long time, because it's sort of been the fight since the battle for the Bible, in the seventies is dilution of confessional Lutheranism into nothing. 
Mm-hmm. And that was usually fought on, that was usually fought because it was most apparent on the grounds of worship, but it also concerned and is not coincidentally linked up with also attitudes to the broader culture, uh, questions of Christian schooling or homeschooling, um, lots of other things, but it was dilution, right? That we would become probably first liturgically and then, and then almost inevitably theologically unrecognizable to ourselves. And mm-hmm. we would be dissolved if we continue to exist as such into broader evangelical Christianity in America, mm-hmm. the way we are for statistical demographic purposes. Right. Now, is this so downgrade dif- or is, is this that's, something separate? Um, it, it, I mean, it could be, it could be downgrade, but it was taking place in a, in a very different context than say the last 10 years of American history. Mm -hmm. So it just didn't, it it didn't seem quite like that. And there's also just the visible reality that in the Missouri Synod, at least I don't know about other Lutheran synods in the Missouri Synod, the people who usually most favor um, other worship styles are born and raised Lutheran. Mm -hmm. And in our synod, they often operate in places where there are lots of born and raised Lutherans. (laughs) So that it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, I mean, there are a lot of Lutherans in Houston. There are a lot of Lutherans in Milwaukee, Chicago area, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't seem like that has to do with dilution until you get a question of like, okay, uh, my kids are no longer going to live in this Lutheran predominant area. So they're going to move to a new place. Are they going to, as you you should have if it's being inculcated, are they choosing a church that's actually Lutheran when they move? Yeah. Well, no, no, they're not. So a lot of times these things are easier to see in retrospect or with some sort of final consequence that at the time it didn't seem like that was going to happen. So there's dilution. That's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Another existential threat is just that the classic way that people – become and remain and then have other people also become and remain Christians and Lutheran Christians is through birth and nurture. Your your number of adult converts anywhere ever is going to be relatively low with the exception of initial what missiologists would call people movements. So this is like, you know, Clovis gets baptized so now all the Franks are going to be baptized, right? Yeah. In the early Middle Ages, right? So when you have those initial people movements, which is where even things like church growth theory are initially about people movements in India, for example, that that's how people become Christians. Almost everybody's raised in it. I I'm not okay. So, uh, but the number of me relative to the number of my wife who was raised in it is vanishingly small, and that mm-hmm. that's that's a dynamic everywhere, always in the church. Okay. Um, most people are going to come into the household of faith through, by, and with their natural household. And that, that itself is natural, right? Like that's good. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, so if those people don't exist, right. Um, so this is where, this is where contraception is just a sheer missiological concern. If those people don't exist, or the ones that do, we're giving relatively thin gruel to, right? So what actually is this child going to be taught, indoctrinated in, before we don't have control over what he does on a Sunday morning? Um, if that's the case, 
if those systems have broken down, right, how many people are there? And then how well are those people being taught? Because if you go back, especially to our older folks, they will often know at a distance of 65 years, the name, the habits, the sayings, the impact of their confirmation pastor, right? So Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can, you, you know, there can be issues with the age of confirmation, the age of first communion, whatever. The, the point stands that that sense of I was raised in something that was real and required me to care and to learn things, right? If that goes away, then obviously that's an existential threat to the church because it means that the church not only has fewer people to work with, which it does, but also that the ones who are here are receiving poor nutrition relative to previous generations. Okay. So using this model of first principles, how do we, how do we, for lack of a better way of saying it, fight against or analyze and begin to, you know, reverse? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that question is one worthy, I mean, you know, I, I am, I'm getting paid roughly $3,000 Uh, per recording here. I just want the listeners to know that. So this is me also setting up a lot, a bigger income stream in the future. This, this is that's a question worthy of multiple episodes, but I would say this, and this is in answer to the third existential threat, which I think is there kind of rolls into how we begin to think about this is that the third threat is obvious cultural, not just (laughs) downgrading, right? That's more of a church danger mm-hmm. is a downgrade, but cultural abyssal chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Things are just <laughs> both people are both falling into, but also demons are proceeding out of the abyss yeah, in all kinds of ways, right? I'm speaking spiritually. And so if that's the case, and so the, the challenges, especially to the word of God are becoming more apparent, stranger, more hideous, all of that, right? Pride month is almost over and it's been kind of a weak pride month compared to last year, right? But it's kind of a special month of warfare. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then one thing that I need to think about from first principles is, has our attitude toward what we're doing personally, congregationally, synodically, has that all been conditioned by assumptions that our gut tells us are false now, but also that we ourselves maybe have not been quite able to admit in our practice. Let me give you an example, right? Is that uh, when we talk about why you are a Christian or not, we have usually patterned that uh, along the lines of why are you specifically a Lutheran Christian? Mm-hmm. And that that explanation has been aimed to keep our people going to a Lutheran church, whatever form of worship it's using, going to a Lutheran church because it's not a Methodist church. So we we're we're we've got plenty of tools to explain what's wrong with decision theology, sometimes even explaining to ourselves why our forefathers were all totally wrong, even in the English vocabulary they were using to talk about salvation. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Um the problem is abyssal chaos is much more prevalent, right, than anything involving <laughs> sincere <laughs> Arminians who probably are trying to homeschool their kids and keep their uh, bodies intact throughout childhood, just like I am at this point. Yeah. So 
what I need to do is look at, okay, what my first principle here is that my, my first job, particularly in a pagan country, which is where we are, certainly on a regime level, our regime is pagan. They, they announce that much. Um, there's a pride flag flying over the Denver Federal Center all month this month. That's our biggest installation outside of the Beltway right here in Denver. Um, if that's the case, then I need to attune my attention and the church's attention and then our capacity to think clearly and respond to these matters of chaos that, and I'm using that word on purpose because the main assault has been against creation mm-hmm. in the last 50 years, 60 years, not against uh, necessarily our doctrine of salvation. That was that's that's a that's a big deal, and you can tell people still have a lot of energy invested in that, and it's it's a big deal for some people. It's just generally not an existential threat to the kids who are drifting away from our congregations. So that's where I need to go back to a first principle of what does the scripture say? Well, the scripture says that I'm to proclaim the whole counsel of God, right? And these are the kinds of they're almost like engineering questions that Musk will ask when he's talking about you know, car batteries. So, okay, so I have to proclaim the whole counsel of God. How do I figure out what it is that I'm proclaiming to any given person? Well, part of what I'm going to do is I'm going to realize that when there's a specific problem, the apostles provide specific answers to those problems, Mm -hmm. right? So they have an overarching thing that they're doing. They're proclaiming the gospel, right? I I don't want to proclaim the gospel somewhere that anyone else has ever been, right? Paul tells the Romans or you know, I, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not a, that's, that's an overarching statement. That's not a limitation of topic just to that, such that if the kid comes in and says, my best friend at school um, wants to be a boy, what am I supposed to call her now? Right. That you're like, well, you know, um, Jesus died for her. <laughs> right. Not the question. What am I supposed to call yeah. her now? Right? Or should I should I lose my job over the pronoun thing? Right? Um, mm-hmm. Am I going to get? Should I? Can I put my pronouns because they're completely like normal? Can I put them on my LinkedIn profile so that it's easier for you know the HR harpies to to be okay with me? And right, like these are all these are questions that you actually want to answer for people. And if if we're not going to do that. If those are existential questions for just, those are just for God's people, right? We're not even talking about apologetics or something. If we're not going to answer those, then we don't deserve to exist. Like that seems so clear to me. If you don't want to preach the word of God, then you go out of existence, right? So, you know, I mean, if you're a 7-Eleven and you don't sell cold drinks, you're not going to be a 7-Eleven for very long. So you're a church, but you don't want to preach the whole counsel of God. You don't get to be a church anymore, right? You get to go away. Like that's, I mean, uh, yeah. So like you get what you deserve. (laughs) Uh, If you get to survive, that's by grace. But, you know, just like your own damnation, if you go out of existence as a church um, with plenty of people around you, you, you get what? you deserve. You did not proclaim God's word to those people. So mm-hmm. you're going to go away. Yeah. So is there a disconnect then in terms of what people think they're actually supposed to preach? I think there is a topical disconnect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Lutherans have 
and this is this is this is our own internal systemic dysfunction. This is not necessarily the case in all Christian churches in America or Canada or Europe or something. Um, but it but it is our own internal dysfunction that we have we rejected what's called gospel reductionism in a formal sense. We did not reject gospel reductionism in a material or practical sense. Mm-hmm. So formally, you can't affirm it. Formally, you must affirm the validity of the third use of the law. Practically, you will limit your topics to the fact of original sin and the fact of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You will address no other topics. Mm-hmm. And because of that, our people are unprepared for the challenges that they do encounter, which is why they express a bewilderment that if you're a pastor, it's easy to be upset or disappointed when you hear it over and over and over again. But if you're a pastor, you should probably be most disappointed with the pastors for not feeding the sheep. And that expression of disappointment or surprise is, my kids aren't interested in church. They don't go to church. I don't know what happened. You know? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I, I, well, I have so some does, idea. Yeah. Go so ahead. is is this related to, number one, the dilution of confessional Lutheran um, identity, so to speak, t- to nothing, that that we've become functional antinomians such that we only talk topically about sin and grace and not about the rest of the articles of the creed? Yeah. Well, th- the question of... It, and this happens a lot in theology is that people put the adjective functional in in front of something because you don't want to say like, because the person did not somewhere formally say like, I don't believe in the old Testament or, right. (laughs) Or or, I don't actually believe in that. Or I don't believe in, I I don't believe that God's law guides the believer in good works, blah, blah, blah. blah, Right. The issue here is that the adjective is there because we're trying to be charitable or trying not to overstate the case or, or because, as is common in the Missouri Synod, the person does on paper swear up and down to all the right stuff. Yeah. The <laughs> the, <laughs> the problem is there's a sense in which biblically that doesn't matter, right? And this is an older Missouri Synod talking point about a union between doctrine and practice. Because if you want to actually not, actually not be an antinomian, you would have to say things besides the topics that would get listed in, say, uh, a dogmatics book as of sin and of grace. Mm-hmm. You'd have to talk about other things, like there are lists in, you know, the 1521 Loci Communis. I'm trying to be safe for the antinomians, right? So let's go with the edition of Melanchthon's dogmatics that that Luther just praises to the skies, right? You got stuff on afflictions. You got stuff on civil government. You got stuff on the use of the law, right? So you've got all these other topics, and the scripture speaks on these. And this is where uh, in the clergy, it's it's so you know we could we could have twenty episodes on what's what's going on with the clergy, right? But in the clergy, (laughs) yeah, okay, good. Um, uh, Against the ministers is what I would call the book if we're book. uh, is that the clergy can afford to ignore those topics because within their own lives, relatively few other topics actually matter to their lives. And it seems that they are preserving Lutheranism or they were told they were if they just talked about those two topics, mm-hmm. right? And so if 
you know, if there are still people and they're still paying you to preach, and so you're still getting paid and you still have a life and the world is not necessarily falling down around you and you don't have DEI training and you didn't get denied a job because you're a white male, like you can still get that call that pays better that you've been wanting closer to your mother-in-law because almost everybody is a white male in your particular little profession, then you're shielded from these things. So the topics don't even seem like pertinent topics to you. And it's completely understandable why they don't seem that way. Yeah. And I think, so I think that's a, is the, the, the way that the clergy are very often shielded from the abyssal chaos because of the carve outs that a nonprofit, that a church, that a particular kind of a church, that a particular kind of training you have to go through, all gives you carve-outs from the modern world. That is the way that we can block the difference between gut feeling and, and intuition. But I, I think that what happens when you keep blocking that, it doesn't, make the, it doesn't make those gut feelings go away. It just means that you do something else with them besides think. And yeah. I think that what most, most often happens with the clergy is that they get depressed by mm. those gut feelings. Yeah. But they don't have to think about them because it's not it, – it hasn't yet become, for many of us, and I think the average age of a Missouri Synod clergyman is in his mid to late 50s. So if that's true, then it's also really hard for somebody that's thinking about retirement in a system that still seems solvent maybe for his lifetime to want to go back to first principles and say, well – how do we actually survive 50 years from now? Because that's that's not him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, kind of one of the recurring themes that I come across just in my own parish is, you know, the antidote to what the world is experiencing, at least as it's covered on the media, the, the, the cultural decay and ab abyssal chaos that you describe. <laughs> um which is just a great way to talk about it. Um, while it is far-reaching and has even, you know, infiltrated into small towns, the small town that I live in, yeah, um, it's not so far-reaching in the sense that it has covered everyone or um, like a black hole consumed everyone. Yeah. So so that a little pushback brings out of the woodwork a whole lot of encouragement. Right. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, and, I mean, I think it's why... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And so so I guess my what I'm trying to always point out to my folks and then even other pastors is, you know, don't, don't take that black pill that says, what's the point? Because there, there are people either currently going to church and who are afraid who will actually marshal behind you if you show a little courage. It, uh, I mean, absolutely, right? And I, uh, in my wanderings around the continent, uh, that's why I feel like I'm always meeting the absolute best people <laughs> because, because they, they come out of the woodwork and they're so great, you know, and their commitment is so, so fierce and they are just absolutely wonderful people. Um, and it's, it's because they are actually trying to live their lives in Christ day by day in a thorough way that comes naturally to Christians. 
And they're doing that in all kinds of different ways, but they really are like just absolutely outstanding human beings to encounter. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just wonderful, right? It's a, it's a privilege. So people get depressed, um, particularly when and where Satan keeps them away from each other. This was, of course, perhaps the most demonic thing about COVID, mm -hmm. but but also when and where he alienates them from each other by making them presume that there is no hope, that yeah. that what they're doing, the fact that they're gathering around the word of God or the fact that their family is singing hymns or something, that this is a relic that is swiftly passing from this earth. Mm -hmm. So uh, I... You know, that's why if I can kind of frame it this way, if you have a variety of things that the church could be doing at any time, you could have, you could be trying to uh, teach the people who are already there. You could try to uh, shore up the churches that you already have. You could try to start new churches. You could try to evangelize people who aren't right now in a church, right? Different things you could do. The only part of that that I find a lot of people have an awareness of because it's what's in their gut feeling Mm -hmm. is what is wrong with what we already have. That's all they have. And they just focus on that because mm -hmm. partly because they have no forum, the pastors in their circuit meeting, the people in their Bible class, they have no forum where somebody says, here's what's wrong. Let's talk about if we can do anything about any of this. Like what, what, what can be done? What can be said? What can be changed? Which is the inquiring spirit that is realistic Right. But because it's inquiring, it can also be daring. Yeah. Right. We're not we're, we're not daring because we can't talk. We're not daring also because if we can't talk, we're never going to come to any kind of solution or comfort or example or correction that the word of God can bring to bear. Yeah. Right. We're just going to we're just going to only remain aware of what's what's wrong. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I, I found a helpful question is, you know, why couldn't we do this? Like, why couldn't we put a big sign up during Pride Month that says the real reason of the rainbow? What would stop us? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, what in the Bible would restrict me from writing a letter to the editor about what the real meaning of the rainbow is? Or... Um, I just yesterday, I was thinking, what would not permit me to book for the next five years every weekend at our community center during June so that the drag show couldn't be there? Like, what, would, <laughs> what would stop me from doing that? Right. I yeah. mean, I'm not breaking any of God's laws. No. Uh, and I could figure out something to do down there every, every, every weekend of the month, uh, just for, for one month. Um, and maybe they'd get the hint. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah. My, uh, my, my classmate Ty Bramwell, um, does these things in Northern California. He's got, you can look him up and his, his church is St. Mark's in Ferndale. Um, and they do these things during, during pride month, but kind of year round. And it's, it's been a, it's been a saga, but uh, one of the things that he told me is that, you know, hey, um, it's it's really weird how many people have come out of the woodwork and they'll say things like, I didn't know that there were still Christian churches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, that you, you. I mean, you obviously, you obviously have things to lose. That's that's part of being called by Christ. There are plenty of things t- that you lose, um, and our our crosses get tailored to us for our own good, not not mm-hmm. by our own choosing. So, what you lose may not be what you expected to lose. But in addition to losing, you receive along with the persecutions a hundredfold the things that you lost. And yeah. all of that comes by way of gift, right? Rather than uh, by way of calculation. So mm-hmm. you, you don't, I mean, you, yes, you have, it's not that you have nothing to lose, but you have so much to gain by proclaiming the word of God um, that it's topically pertinent, right? Yeah. Um, that the, the sky is the limit on, on the gifts that God can shower on you or your congregation as you do. Okay. So, um, Dilution, the classic way, birth and nurture, cultural, abyssal, chaos, spiritually speaking. <laughs> uh, those are the main existential threats. Uh, and the first principles are, as a matter of course, going back to what is, what are we actually called to, to do, preach about, right. proclaim right. the yeah. whole counsel of God, not just sin and grace. And looking at that, uh, and and actually, I don't know, making the word of God applicable beyond the fact that you're a sinner, God loves you, that actually might have a life to unfold for you to live in. Right. Yeah. There was a there was a Twitter thread the other day by a guy that I believe is a Wells layman, but raised in the system. Um, their 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 system of schooling, or if you wanted to put it just in Bible words, their their system of discipleship, mm-hmm. and. It's a story about how he learned to realize that he was being fed, you know, baby food his whole life, mm. but that feeding, you know, feeding him baby food his whole life did not make him strong enough to handle any of the temptations or difficulties that his life had given him. And it also uh, gave him a sense of Christianity, which was shrunken and impoverished relative to what you actually find in the Bible. Yeah. And that's a very powerful thread because he's not the only person who has realized these things. Not exactly that we were lied to, maybe, although sometimes I was lied to. Like I was told, you're going to preach the same sermon every week. (laughs) False, (laughs) right? Um, I think all the lies were well meant. But um, even when they weren't outright lies, they were a refusal to handle certain things. So when the internet comes online, and this is part of his example, when it comes online in the late 90s, uh, you immediately have massive amounts of pornography being put before your eyes, potentially, if you so desire. And probably, um, if you've heard about that in a sermon, or if you've been instructed about that by a pastor, it was glancing, and it was to tell you that it was wrong, which you already knew. Almost, you, you, you knew that intuitively. It wasn't to help you necessarily. It wasn't to show you a way to avoid those things that would be harmful to your faith. I mean, vices mm-hmm. are vicious, right? They cut you up in a vicious way. They take you apart. That's that's what that means. Um, none of that was actually being presented. So, okay, now we have whatever percentage of our men in any given congregation, uh, particularly our young men who have been bombarded with this from earliest youth by people who were well-meaning but didn't know how to handle technology and what to give to a child 
what access he could have to things. And now um, they are guilty all the time. And that harms their will to do things, that harms their capacity to achieve things in life, that harms their ability to uh, find a, a wife because mm -hmm. they are ashamed of themselves all of the time and they're devoting their energies to that which is in vain and they know it. Um, so here we are, right? Um, we didn't have to be here necessarily, but mm -hmm. here we are. So the question to ask ourselves is, okay, are, what are we going to do about that? Right. And when you return to a first principle and the absolute most basic first principle of a Christian is what does God say, then you are submitting yourself to what is actually necessary, which is God and his truth. Everything else is, this is a philosophical or theological word, but everything else is contingent. Mm -hmm. It hangs on him. It hangs on his word like the whole world does. So if you're going back to his word, especially if you're doing that with other brothers, right? You're doing that together. Then what you're going to find is going to profit you regardless of how uncomfortable it might be to face. So this is again, where you have to realize that when you're, when you're coming to God's word, yeah, you're losing things like you're losing your pride or you're losing like whatever, you know, copes you made in your own mind for why looking at porn is okay or whatever you thought. Right. Yeah. And, but you're, but you're gaining life and, and power, right? power and love and self-control, right? That's the spirit that you receive when you read these scriptures. So um, you're always gaining more, however painful it is to actually start moving that way. Mm -hmm. So that the first principle, what does God say? We need to go back to that more often uh, and not just in, in terms of the, the shallow, you're a sinner, Christ died for you. Is there something else in first principles uh, and not, I mean, we've talked about the temperament. We've talked about the actual, what does God say? Is there another thing that we're, we're missing by yeah. making assumptions? Um, yeah. And that's, that's, that's why this is going to be such a lucrative income stream for me as we do 30 episodes <laughs> on this, because <laughs> um, I'm just alerting the people to the dark money flowing around Lutheranism. That's all. Um, is that what's happening is... You're, you're not supposed to say that out loud because I don't pay anybody else. Well, that's okay. You're <laughs> going to edit this out anyway. It's fine. Um, uh, is that what's happening when you return to the Word of God is not only that you're accessing truth, but that you are accessing a source of life that is inexhaustible. And when, you're, when you do that, um, the way that August Pieper talks about this is he says that reading the Bible makes you as narrow as Scripture is and as broad as scripture is, and no broader, which is probably our most common cultural temptation, but also no narrower, which is a temptation, certainly in portions of Luri, to be very, very, very narrow on things that it's, it's hard to say, well, the Bible definitely says that you should or shouldn't pray table prayers with somebody who isn't in the same synod as you. Like, I, I think that's hard to do. Yeah. There are steps to get there. I, I get the logical steps. I've read the books, but it's definitely harder to do than to say that you should, you know, not put worthless things in front of your eyes, young man. So, right. okay. So when you do that, what's going to happen is that it opens up your imagination, both for what is just obvious and necessary and to actually what is now possible. So to give you an example, obvious and necessary 
is that we have a sturdy, clear form of worship as Lutherans that we know actually produces Lutherans. Mm-hmm. So to me, <laughs> continued debate about worship is ju- just always feels so, I mean, I'm making faces instead of saying something. It just feels so pointless. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. who cares? And no one coming in from the outside is coming, is trying to come to a Lutheran church that doesn't have a pastor preaching a sermon and reading the lessons that doesn't have Holy Communion, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't actually have hymns and psalms that inculcate the faith that we want people to have that inculcates Mm -hmm. instead different teaching. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter at all. Like it, our diversity of worship is simply a function of numerical strength. That is precisely what's evaporating. Yeah. So who like, like, let's just, you know, that's fine. What, what it, what going back to scripture also shows you though, is that the, the, you know, ways in which we need to make people aware of those things, um, of absolution of, um, the truth of the scripture about this or that topic, whatever those we need to be much more energetic about in the same way that not, not to the same degree, probably, but in the same way that Paul is always trying to put together money so that he can keep moving. Mm-hmm. You know, so he has a clear sense of what he has to do. What he has to do is different from what we have to do. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. Um, we're put in different places. But the energy with which we pursue that should at least approximate somebody who's trying to make money on Wall Street, let alone the Apostle Paul, because we have goods of such greater value than mammon. So yeah. um, that that's where reading the scriptures gives me not only uh, what to think or, or what to believe, but also a sense of life that gives that enables me to say this is really important. I will pursue this with great energy. This is not really important. Um, I will not worry about it the way that I have. Like I will not worry that somebody is using smoke machines, and I, I don't I'm not you know thurible's. I mean like actual smoke machines, like rock concert. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're both smoke machines in a way, right? Um, it, it, they're they're using smoke machines. That's going away. Like it's gone, it's, it's already gone. It didn't matter. That's not even why people went to church in the nineties. It's gone. It's over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because the numerical strength and the, you know, let's have a ton of consumer choices for people who vaguely sort of want to go to church. That's going away. If they're going to go to church, it's because they actually want to, and they actually want to be Lutherans. So I just don't need, I'm not worried about fog machines anymore. Like I don't, it's fun. Like they're doing it. It's going away. I don't care. I need to worry about getting out the message that the scriptures have for the world. Yeah. Okay. So how many episodes did you want to do? Yeah, I was <laughs> I was 30, so at 3,000 per episode, it's okay. going to be great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are all kinds of directions, and this is, this is up to you, this is up to the listeners. There are all kinds of directions to take it precisely because the capacity to, to think in accord with your own most basic truths is essential to existing and not just existing, but even thriving, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly in difficult times. Yeah. Is there a sense in which we've lost what you just said about the very thing that we have is more costly, far more valuable than what Musk will ever do. Is there a sense where we've lost 
even that intuition such that at the end of the day, if he doesn't, if Musk doesn't do what he does, he goes broke. At the end of the day, what do we lose? And are we even thinking about that? Yeah. Um, I think that this is, this is not just evident in a, a church that has little confidence in its own first principles is one that's going to struggle to recruit preachers, which yeah. obviously we're, is, is true for us. Because if you actually think something is valuable, you'll, you'll want to do it as much as you possibly can. Right. Um, so, and, and if that's not what you do vocationally, then the idea that your life is still lived for Christ and his truth and his church Mm -hmm. should be obvious to any Christian. And so anything that you're doing, you're, you're doing all to the glory of God, right? Said some pietists, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so um, if the church doesn't have a sense of the worth of what it's doing or of the gospel that it's proclaiming, then obviously energy and commitment and everything else will be certainly relative to other ages when we were perhaps poorer or we had fewer resources that we now have, but that the energy or the drive will not be there because we don't believe in what we're doing on some level, not the way that we did. Mm -hmm. If I believe in what I'm doing, then finding energy to do it is usually pretty easy, (laughs) right? Given like a reasonable sleep schedule and, uh, you know, moderation in all things, it's fairly easy to be energetic if I believe in what I'm doing. You know, I mean, that's that's why people are on the train at 5 a.m. to go in, you know, Wall Street or whatever other financial institution because they believe in what they're doing because everyone tells them that's important, right? Yeah. Or everyone tells, you know, my kid's a software engineer at, you know, at Google, at, you know, whatever other thing. Oh, congratulations, because it's important that you innovate technologically and make a bunch of money off of it. The reason we don't feel that way about, proclamation of the gospel or making life choices that mark you out as a faithful Christian, perhaps to the, at the loss of some money or something, uh, is an index of where we are on actually being invested in these things ourselves in a, in a, yeah, kind of what we've been talking about reminds me of something that Dorothy Sayers wrote, uh, about sloth. She said, (laughs) It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys <laughs> nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing it would die for. Um, let's not be that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think that there is maybe there's also an idea when there's when there's relatively little energy or confidence or interest there's there's an idea that somehow even though you're alive right um Mm -hmm. to some purpose that you're that you can be static that somehow the life of the spirit is like a rock Mm -hmm. um and over a short enough time it looks like absolutely nothing ever changes with that rock right so um that you can just sit there and stay the same and it's fine and that's that's not actually true, mm-hmm. right? If you're alive, you're you're growing, or you're dying. Yeah, there might be seasons to that. There might be cycles to that. But you're growing, or you're dying, right? Um, mm-hmm. You're growing new branches, or you are going to be knocked down in a storm soon enough. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we'll uh, chat offline about the next 30 episodes. But uh, <laughs> okay. it sounds good. <laughs> until then, thanks for your time and um, for working through this article. And I look forward to what's to come. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. 